the subject of, uh, of um, evil and the existence of God has been one that um, I've wrestled through intensely in the past. In my darker moments as I struggled with my faith, um, I came to a place, especially as I was reading academic books and theologians and stuff, and, and I really began to um, challenge my conceptions about God. And so I began to read um, basically everything I could on the subject, and I was reading stuff by philosophers, by theologians. I'd read stuff by atheists and, and, and by ex-Christians. And I, I even, at one point, picked up a book called The Christian Delusion, um, written by uh, a variety of ex-Christians. I think uh, Kirk Cameron is right in a, in a video he recently said uh, that um, this subject of if God is good and if God is all-powerful, how can evil exist, is literally a faith-wrecking issue for a lot of people who would consider the subject. And, and so I know from wrestling through myself that pat answers won't do. Just giving a quick solution just is not going to cut it, not for someone like me. And in those moments of my darkest times, I read these people and I kind of wanted to justify a walking away from the faith. But what frustrated me, and as I read about these ex-Christians and what they had, their views and their perspectives, and then as I read um, uh, your atheists who, who use this issue to, as, as, a, as an argument against God and, and all these other what, what really bothered me was that just beneath the surface of their arguments, there bubbled many, many, many other issues. And it almost seemed to me like the issue of if God, why evil was sort of like the crutch. Like there's all these issues, that they, they've had bad experiences, they've, they've had run-ins or encounters or whatever. They've read things and, and they've, they've seen things. And so they want to walk away or deny or, or come against uh, the Christian faith in some fashion. And they're looking for something intellectual to hang their hat on. And the question of if God, why evil seems to be the crutch. But then when I examined my own heart in those moments... I had to admit that it was a crutch that I reached out to. Because the reality is, I've seen a lot of bad stuff in churches over the years. I was kind of turned off for a long while. I had some bad experiences, met some pretty horrible pastors. Then I started reading theology and I realized that the, the diverse views amongst Christians are so big and I was kind of not quite mature in my faith to handle that kind of stuff. And it took some time for me to realize that the big tent of the faith is, is, is solid. And within that big tent, there is room for diversity while still acknowledging each other's relationship to the Lord. And so I had to examine my own heart. And so this sermon is, is in part birthed through my own struggles. I have three questions for you today that I want to ask. The first question is, are you willing... To worship a God that you know could have stopped suffering, but for reasons beyond your comprehension, did not. Are you willing, number two, to grieve with someone who is grieving without falling into the temptation of feeling the need to answer the why questions? And number three, are you willing to allow God's solution to the problem of suffering be enough to ground you in your faith in all situations. 
Bow your head with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord. We thank You, Lord, that we can trust in You. We thank You, Lord, that You are a God who experiences and came near. And God, we just pray that You'd open our hearts and our minds that we would receive from You this day. There really is... The problem of suffering really is twofold. On the one hand, there's the problem of suffering from an intellectual perspective. What this means is that philosophers, theologians, and debaters approach the question of suffering in an abstract manner. It's just, it's just an issue to debate. Um, that has real-life consequences, but it's very intellectual. Then there's the problem of suffering from an emotional perspective. And this is the person who, who, who simply refuses to, to worship a God in light of the reality of the world that we live in. The problem of suffering dates back to really about the, uh, 300 years before Christ. The first person to really articulate the problem of suffering um, was a guy with a Greek philosopher named Epicurus. Epicurus put it like this. He says, Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's impotent. If he's willing but not able, then he's not all-powerful. He says, is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Then he is evil. Then he is he's, he's unconcerned with what goes on in this world. Is he both able and willing? Then why does evil exist? And in some form or some fashion, this has become the atheist creed. The deist creed, even. Dawkins famous, um, famous uh, atheist, uh, says this. This is, this is his worldview. He says, The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive, many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear, others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. And it must be so, he says. If there ever is a time of plenty, this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. So Dawkins sees the way things are supposed to be. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to be hurt, others are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if, at bottom, there is no design, there is no purpose, there is no evil, there is no good, there is nothing but pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Brothers and sisters, I think that the, that is the saddest way to view life that you could even comprehend. For Dawkins, if there's some guy in the backwoods molesting a little girl, that's not evil. Because evil just simply does not exist. I find it ironic that he ends with this statement. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. And we dance to its music. You know, brothers and sisters, if you go on YouTube, you can type in um, dancing robot. I want you to do it. It's hilarious. And this robot's going to come up on YouTube and you watch and he's going to lift his arm and then he's just going to start, you know, kind of moving around like this and doing some dance. And it's funny. It is hilarious. You're going to feel 
Like, that's funny. You're going to watch it and you're going to experience it and you're going to laugh because it's funny. But that robot is dancing, but it's not experiencing anything. You know what I mean? A robot can't experience anything. All it can do is do what it's been pre-programmed to do. This is one of the great arguments against Dawkins' theory, that humans, the very fact that we can experience suggests that maybe a God exists. If all we are is chemicals and electrons running through our bodies, then how can we enjoy anything? Dawkins is an atheist. There's a guy named Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman was um, a Christian and a Bible scholar. Today he is an agnostic. And he writes this. He says, I can no longer reconcile the claim of faith with the facts of life. I came to the point where I simply could not believe that there was a good and kindly disposed ruler who was in charge. He says, the problem of suffering became for me the problem of faith. That, in fact, brothers and sisters, I have friends that I've known for years, years, most of my life, who are exactly in this place. Then there's a guy named Anthony Flew. So we heard from the atheist, we heard from the the agnostic. Anthony Flew was a famous, famous philosopher and an atheist. And Anthony Flew was was adamantly um, opposed to Christianity, um, to the idea of God, and to all other um, religions. In the um, in the year 2004, Anthony Flew came to believe that God existed, and he did it not by looking at the question, if God exists, why evil? But by simply asking the question itself, does God exist? And he worked it out philosophically. He says, how can a universe of mindless matter produce beings with intrinsic ends and self-replicating capabilities? Scientists, he says, are dealing with the interaction of chemicals, whereas our question has to do with how something can be processing. This is exactly what I had mentioned earlier about the poem. For him, the very fact that human life exists and that humans can reason suggests that a God has to exist. He says if you take a toaster and you pop toast in it, the toaster is not going to enjoy the toast. But you will. If you put a CD in a CD player, the CD player is not going to enjoy the music, but you will. And so with this evidence, Anthony Flew became a deist. That is, Anthony Flew came to believe that a God had to exist. So what about the question of if God, why evil? Well, Anthony Flew is a deist for that very purpose. A deist is someone who believes that God might have wound up the universe and then went away somewhere. That God doesn't care. I know there's a lot of Christians who who sometimes lead in that direction, and, and that was a question that I struggled with, that if God's good and, and God's all-powerful, then why is evil in the world? Well, I've got to believe that God maybe isn't good. And so he's, he's gone off somewhere. He's a deist. And so that's the deist perspective. Okay, so we have the atheist. We have the agnostic. We have the deist. I want to talk about the Christian perspective. William Lane Craig writes this. This is a very positive report, brothers and sisters. He talks about the progress that philosophers have made in, in, this, in this question. He says this, he says, I am very pleased to report to you that it is widely recognized by philosophers today, both theists and atheists, that the logical version to the problem of evil has been solved. He says there are very few atheist philosophers today 
who would defend the logical version of the problem of evil anymore. And those few would, represent, would be um, Richard Dawkins and people from the um, neo-atheists. They present the problem and, of course, in, in, the, in a popular level, pick up on it and, and it becomes um, re- repeated and, of course, um, it seems to be a very big issue. But amongst philosophers, the problem has mostly been solved. And here's how that was done. The problem of evil, evil has two elements to it. Is God all good? Is God all powerful? And if so, why is there evil? The problem philosophers have, have theorized to solve is simply by adding a third element. Does God have a morally sufficient reason for permitting evil to exist? If you, if you include that third option, there is no longer a contradiction There's no contradiction. The contradiction doesn't exist. It simply ceases to exist. God is all-powerful. God is all-good. And he has a morally sufficient reason for permitting evil to exist. Now, this won't satisfy maybe a lot of people. It satisfies philosophers who come at it from a very logical, abstract um, angle. But it won't satisfy a lot of us because we want to know, well, what are those reasons? And the reality is we simply don't know. We simply can't know because because we haven't been privy to all the information, to all the knowledge. But the fact that we don't know is not an answer, to, is not a reason to deny the solution. In fact, we can kind of give an example of down to earth. I'm a parent now. I've got a daughter who's nine and a half months old, almost ten months old. My daughter's at the stage where she's pulling herself up all the time, right? And anyone know what happens when a little baby's always pulling themselves up? Anyone venture a guess? Anyone? We've got some parents in the room. What? They fall down. I'm very proud of my little girl. But I have a choice to make. See, compared to her, I'm pretty powerful. And my love for her is undeniable. But when I'm watching her struggle, because she struggles, she grabs the edge of the couch, and she pulls herself up like she's doing a chin-up, and she's dragging her feet under her to get them to give her the leverage. And I have a choice. I can become that overprotective person who does not want their daughter to fall at all. And I can come there and I can literally brace her every time she gets up to guarantee she never falls. But I've chosen to become the kind of parent, I'm there, and I'll catch her as much as I can. But I want to be the kind of parent who wants to see my daughter push herself to succeed. And sometimes she... She's pretty low, and sometimes she loses her grip, and I'll go out and grab her, and sometimes I won't, and sometimes her head would hit the carpet, and sometimes she lets out a little cry, and oftentimes she doesn't. There's a little suffering involved there, a little suffering that I could very easily just guarantee never happens. But I have, you you might say, a morally sufficient reason for permitting that. Um, C.S. Lewis, I, I like his quote, Talking about people who have no problem coming to God because they say, oh, God's good, God's good. And C.S. Lewis's quote response is this. And C.S. Lewis believed in God, so obviously this is tongue-in-cheek. He says, but have you never been to a dentist? Because back in C.S. Lewis's day, Novocaine simply did not exist or wasn't used the way it's used today. That means that when they sat you down on, on the table and they drilled into your mouth, you felt it. You suffered. Now, I'm sure we wouldn't say that the dentist was evil or that the drilling is evil. We would say that this person went in and permitted um, evil 
or permitted suffering for themselves, that the dentist permitted suffering for the person, in order to bring out some greater justification. Now, this won't satisfy everyone, but on a grand scale, we can't even begin to fathom, fathom God and his reasons. We can't even begin to comprehend them. Things are so huge. I like, um, I like how, uh, how um, um, William Lane Craig put it. He, he gave an illustration of World War I. What was the deciding factor within that war was that Winston Churchill was involved. Right? Winston Churchill was a deciding factor within that war. His leadership and, and everything he did. And, and, and what did it take for Winston Churchill to be there at that time to help push back the evil of the war? Well, William Lane Craig says, yeah. a sperm and an egg had to come together at some point, right? For Winston Churchill to, to be there. And, 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 and maybe had earlier that day Winston's mom and dad, maybe um, it, it happened because Winston, Winston's mom went into the house and turned left instead of right, right? Because these variables, it's the butterfly effect. You never know what's going to happen if you turn one way or another. And maybe she turned left instead of right because she had to clean the mud off her shoe because the gardener had left something out. Maybe, maybe the gardener left something out that she tripped over because he didn't sleep well the night before. Maybe he didn't sleep well because, because he had an argument with his wife. And, and you, you begin to explore all the variables and all the possibilities and you begin to realize that we are so small and so inconsequential in our minds that we cannot even begin to comprehend you know, what God's reasons are. So that is the intellectual struggle with the problem of evil. That's the intellectual version. That's the answer given. M.T. Wright was debating a guy named Bart, debating Bart Ehrman, the, the agnostic. And he said this. He said, I once heard Rowan Williams, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, suggest that it might actually be immoral to try to solve the problem of evil. Because as soon as you say, there, look, that makes it all right, doesn't it? You're radically, radically belittled the problem. Blinding yourself to the real, powerful, and radical nature of evil. And so, brothers and sisters, while I gave you the intellectual, I just gave you the intellectual download, the intellectual response to the problem of evil, the reality is, if you're sitting here today and and you struggle with the problem of evil from an emotional perspective, by giving you the problem that intellectuals, the answer that intellectuals have, I have suddenly belittled the issue because that because it's nice to give a philosophical answer. It's a totally different thing when you find out that a young man's got a brain tumor. It's a completely different scenario. It is the emotional problem to the evil. When an eight-year-old boy discovers that both his parents have terminal cancer. And I want to ask you a question, brothers and sisters. Are you willing to worship a God who's all-powerful, a God that you know could have stopped evil and suffering, but for reasons that are beyond your comprehension, did not. In our story today in, in John chapter 11, verses 17 to 21, says this. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed in her home. The first note I want to make in passing, brothers and sisters, is that Mary stayed in her home because she didn't know. She didn't get the report like Martha did. So obviously they weren't in the same room. We're going to find that out in just a minute. But Martha heard that Jesus was coming and she ran out to meet him. It's very easy to read this and to move on. The significance of this passage is 
is huge for what I'm saying right now. Because in that culture, in that time, you honored someone who was worthy of honor. And you worshipped someone who was worthy of worship by running out before they entered your town and greeting them. And in fact, even ushering them back in. In the Roman culture, whenever um, Caesar back then was going to go visit, say, the, the Roman city of Philippi, word, report would reach the city that Caesar was coming. And, and everybody who was anybody would come out of the city to meet Caesar. And then they'd usher him back in. This is what's going on in, in, in Thessalonians when the Bible says that, that, the, that the Lord, that the King will return and we shall meet Him up in the air. And left behind theology has really mucked things around because um, what's going on here and what theologians are saying is going on here is we meet Him in the air and not so we can we whist off to a seven-year dinner somewhere and, and then all this other stuff ensue, but that we meet Him to usher Him back to the new creation, to new heaven, to new earth here on earth. And that's what's going on here is that we have Mary who hears that Jesus is coming and she runs out to meet him. And it says in verse 21, Lord, she said. She calls him Lord. And she says to Jesus, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. And then in verse 27, she says, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into this world. Here we have Mary, in spite, in spite of her question, Lord, why weren't you here? You could have saved my brother. You could have stopped this suffering. And this didn't stop her at all from running out to worship him, to acknowledge who he is, and to love him. Verse 28, Martha runs back to Mary. She says, the teacher is here. See, Mary didn't know. She said, and he's asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and she went to him. And now Jesus had not yet entered the village and he stayed at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews had, who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her supposing she was going to the tomb. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was, she saw him. She fell at his feet and she said, Lord, in other words, Master, King, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. She worshipped him. In spite of the questions, in spite of the situation, in spite of her grief, she acknowledged who he was, knowing full well that he could have stopped the suffering they're experiencing. So are you willing to worship a God you know could have stopped suffering, but for reasons beyond your comprehension, did not? My second question, are you willing to Grieve with someone who is grieving without falling to the temptation of offering an answer to the why questions. You know, we Christians, we're not very comfortable with questions. We need answers. We need answers for everything. We need to give them. You know, those are practice and those are custom in Jewish culture that's even relevant even today. And it goes way back, way back. Some people say as far back as Joseph and maybe, maybe even further. And this custom was called the sitting Shiva. What happened was whenever a relative died, whenever someone close to you died, you would, you, you would sit and you would mourn for seven days. That's all you would do is mourn. And then people who were friends and, and relatives, they would come and they would mourn with you. And they would offer a shoulder to cry on. And they would experience your grief with you. And oftentimes they would just sit in silence. You know, in Job chapter 2, that's what's going on. If you read the passage, Job is wrecked. 
wrecked because he lost everything and his family died and he, he lost everything. He's sitting under a tree and his buddies from Bible study come walking along. And when they see pathetic-looking Job sitting there in his sad state, the Bible says that they tear their clothes and they put ashes on and they, they break down and they sit with him and they partake in a seven-day grieving fest called sitting Shiva. They're trying to identify with him. Then in chapter 3 of Job, Job begins to get it out. You ever sit with someone who's grieving and they get it out? Why'd this happen? Where was God? What I do to deserve this? That's what Job does in Job chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, I believe they're rhetorical questions. Job's friends went wrong when they started pulling out the theology textbooks and trying to give the best answers they could. They were way ahead when they just kept their mouths shut and gave Job a shoulder to cry on. And in our text, I think it's just very powerful. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus saw, uh, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell his feet and said, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, Paul says he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then in what is probably, what is the smallest and probably the most Emotive verses in the Bible. It says Jesus wept. I want you to picture it, brothers and sisters. He knows what he's going to do. But he sees Mary and Martha crying. He sees all the people there crying. And he just breaks down and cries. Let that sink in. The God of the universe is crying. Even though he knows what he's going to do and nobody else knows. You know, brothers and sisters, when we struggle with the question of if God, why evil? You have two responses you can make. The first is you can look at God as He's revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. And you can look at a God who comes down to Uganda or to our family in Leamington who's grieving and who stands there in the midst of whatever the situation is, breaks down and cries even though He knows everything that's going on. Even though He knows what his morally sufficient reasons are for permitting evil. In spite of that, he comes down and he cries. And he experiences your suffering and he experiences your pain. And you can reply one of two ways. Acknowledging that you don't have all that, you're not God and you don't have all the answers, you can acknowledge, you can say, as the Jews did in verse 36, see how he loves them. It's a powerful statement that you can look at a God who came down to earth to identify with you and I and suffered mercilessly in order to take on the suffering of this world. And you can look at this God and you can look at the situations of this world and you can see this God weeping. And you can say, look at how God loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son. Or you can be like the cynics, the people who think they have all the answers. Verse 37, you can be like these people. Could not he who have opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? And here Jesus is weeping with them. He has not provided the answers to anyone of what he's going to do very clearly. And you and I don't know the answers to what's going on in the world. We don't know what God's reasons are. We can choose to recognize the God revealed in Jesus Christ and recognize that he loves us, and that he loves people in the world. Or we can become cynical and say, if he really is who he said he was, then why is this going on? Finally, brothers and sisters, my third question to you is this. 
Are you willing to allow God's solutions to the problem of suffering be enough to ground you and to ground your faith in all situations? In my darkest moments, what I was talking about earlier at the beginning of the sermon, there was one thing I couldn't get, I, I couldn't get away from, if you will. When I came to a place where I wanted to walk away from the faith, where I wanted that crutch, this so-called problem of evil, where I was angry with the church, and in effect, angry with God, what I couldn't get away from is simply the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For me, brothers and sisters, this is where my faith hangs. This is everything for me. Everything. My faith does not hang on a particular interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. My faith does not hang on a particular interpretation of biblical authority or inerrancy. Everything I believe hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In 1996, world-renowned scholar N.T. Wright wrote a book called Jesus and the Victory of God. When he wrote this book, it was 600 pages, and he published it, and there was nary a comment about the resurrection. And people began to question whether or not N.T. Wright still hangs on to the resurrection. People began to get cynical and, and began to get panicky, and people began to write articles about how N.T. Wright has almost practically denied it by believing it right out of the story of Jesus. What people didn't know at the time is as N.T. Wright started working on the chapter on the resurrection, he was writing and researching and writing and researching until the chapter on the resurrection was so big it could no longer fit within the book of Jesus. And so his publisher decided to just publish the book called Jesus and the Victory of God. And in the meantime, N.T. Wright kept writing and kept researching, and kept writing, and kept researching. Finally, about seven years later, he published his chapter on the resurrection. It was a book that had 200 pages more than his other one. 800 pages, and it was bigger in volume with smaller print. And he wrote the book as a historian. Powerful. He went to the Gospels, and he said, if these were just historical texts, and he went to Paul's letters and John's letters and he says, these were historical texts. Can the resurrection be proven true? And his book, which I think today stands as probably the most de definitive work on the resurrection ever done, his philosophy tutor at Oxford, who was an atheist, read it. And he said to her right afterwards, he said, great book. He said, you really make the argument. I simply choose to believe that there must be some other explanation even though I don't know what that is. You know what it tells me, brothers and sisters? It tells me that the evidence for the resurrection is undeniable. So you got an atheist who simply doesn't believe in a God. He can't believe in the resurrection. He refuses to acknowledge it. But if you let the evidence follow you or, or lead you wherever you're going to go, you begin with the resurrection. What's that mean? Well, it means there must be a God. Furthermore, it means that this God must have come to earth, that what the scriptures say about Jesus must be true. What the scriptures say then are reliable. That God came near, that God loves us, that he died on the cross for us. That what the Bible says about creation is true. Like you begin with the resurrection and you work your way backwards from there. And you let the resurrection be the, be the foundation of your pyramid of belief systems. In our passage today, I think it's so marvelous that Jesus ends this scenario with the, the resurrection of Lazarus. Well, those sisters, the resurrection was the hope that Jesus tried to instill into Mary and Martha. The resurrection was the hope that Jesus tried to instill within, within his disciples. Paul said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is futile. But if Christ is raised from the dead, it 
changes everything. Tells me that there's a God who loves us. That there's a God who came down to solve the problem of suffering in this world. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection is our glorious hope. That if Christ Jesus rose from the dead, then you and I too shall rise. And that there will be no more pain and no more suffering. In the meantime, we need to acknowledge in the mystery, we need to acknowledge that there is a God who weeps with a world that is suffering. And then we also need to acknowledge that through prayer and through action, you and I have been called to be the body of Christ to help ease suffering in this world through our actions. So my three questions to you today. Are you willing to worship a God you know could have stopped evil, but for reasons beyond, beyond your comprehension did not? Are you willing to grieve with someone who is grieving without falling into the temptation of offering pat answers to their deep why question in their emotional state? And are you willing to allow God's solution to the problem of suffering, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, be enough to ground your faith in all situations?